Welcome to the Lake Point Church Weekend Messages Podcast. Thanks for joining us to hear the latest sermons happening at our church. We pray that God speaks to you in a timely way through this message. And if you're encouraged by this podcast, be sure to rate, review, and share it to help get the word out. You can find more digital content to feed your faith and our other podcasts by visiting lakepoint.church/digital. Now, let's tune into the message for today. Good morning, Lake Point. I want to invite you guys to stand together. Let's turn our hearts towards the Lord. Let's call on Him. He's worthy. He's our help and trouble. We need no other hiding place. Hope is safe. Our hope is safe within your name. We know. never to forsake what you began you will sustain this we know this we know I will call upon the Lord for he alone is strong enough to Shackles are no more, for Jesus Christ has broken. 
that truth. You guys can be seated. One of the great privileges that we have as a church is to, to encourage families as they seek to fulfill their God-given duty. And so that's what we're doing today with this parent dedication. And we don't actually dedicate babies because we believe that every person has to dedicate their own life to Christ. And each one of these children we pray will do that one day. And at that time, they'll be baptized just like they were in the Bible as young children or adults. But these parents are committing themselves to introduce their children to God's love and then to disciple them themselves. Uh, each of these families has chosen a verse to be read for their child. And after that is done, they'll come and stand all the way across the front here. And even as we're reading other names and reading other scriptures, feel free to stand up and go ahead and come to the front. Gather around them if you're family or life group members or friends. And then we're going to give you an opportunity here in just a little bit to pray for them. It's in that spirit that I want to ask you as parents if you will commit yourselves to introducing your own children to the love of God and then to disciple your children, not only by what you say, but especially by how you live. Will you commit yourself to this task? Sean and Mariah Bailey and daughter Sarah Angela. Sarah, I want to give you 1 Timothy 4.12 that says, Don't let anyone look down on you because you're young, but set an example for the believers in speech in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. It's okay. It really is. All right. God bless you guys. Tyler and Amber Bynum and daughter Kennedy Kay. Kennedy, I want to give you Proverbs 4.23 that says, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. That's yours. All right. And daughter Aubrey Lynn. One of my favorite scriptures, Aubrey Lynn. It says, I can do all things through him who gives me strength, Philippians 4.13. All right. And son, William Lee. William Proverbs 22.6 says, train up a child in the way that he should go, and even when he is old, he will not depart from it. God bless you guys. Michael and Valerie Hughes and son, Landry Bradford. Jeremiah 29.11 says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. God bless you guys. And daughter, Lakin Lovell. Lakin, Psalm 139.14 says, I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful and I know that full well. God bless you guys. Josh and Kristen Montenegro and son, Adam Joshua. In Joshua 1, 9, it says, Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. What a great promise for life. Timothy and Gabrielle Wawernia and daughter Harper Addison. Harper Matthew 19, 14, it says, Jesus said, Let the children to come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And son, Owen Connor. Owen, I want to give you James 1.17 that says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, 
coming down from the Father of heavenly lights. What a great reminder. God bless you guys. Scott and Lauren Wingo and son Hudson Lee. Hudson, where are you, buddy? Ephesians 3, 17. He sees himself on the screen there. And I pray that you, being rooted in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. Thank you. God bless. Kimberly Duffy and son Beckham Phoenix. Beckham, I'll steal that hat from you. I will. <laughs> Second Timothy 1.7 says, For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. God bless you guys. As you're coming here to pray with these, let me just take a moment to welcome those of you who may be guests with us today. When you came in, you received a handout. In that handout, there's a tear-off that says guest info. And we invite you sometime during the service if you will fill that out. And you can either place it in the offering plate or you can drop it in one of the boxes that are at all of the doors as you exit. Or you can bring that by the Connection Center. We'd love to meet you today. Also want to remind everyone that on the back side of that guest info card is an opportunity for you to volunteer to help us out with our in-town youth retreat called The Weekend, which is coming up. So look at the opportunities there. And if you would hop uh, help us out and you can also drop those in the same place in either the offering plate or in the black boxes. And then I want to remind everyone that next week is Hot Topics and f immediately following this service there will be a list of uh, Hot Topics or courses that go from anywhere to four to six weeks. Things like on personal finance, on parenting, on all kinds of topics and so as you leave today you'll actually receive a list of those uh, topics. I hope that you'll come back next week and be a part of that after the worship service. And then finally, would you be in prayer for uh, two groups that are going to be on mission this week? Uh, specifically, we have a team of five that's going to Denver to help launch a new church that we're starting there. And then we also have a team of two who are going to Haiti to work with our partners there. And so you be in prayer for them as they're on mission, even as you're on mission. And now we're going to pray for the mission that these parents are on. Would you join me in prayer? Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for these parents. I thank you for the love that they have for you and the difference that's going to make in the lives of their children. We pray that you will give them everything that they need to equip them for the task and the mission that you've called them on. I pray to your Father you'll give them wisdom. You'll give them courage. You'll give them patience and give them energy. Most of all, dear Father, you will give them a deep and abiding relationship with you that they can pass on to their own children. And we pray all this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. All right, as these are returning to their seats, why don't we all stand together and greet one another and then just remain standing as we worship together today. together in song the goodness of our God whether in joy or trial he is king so let's sing this out together
so awesome to hear you guys singing. Uh, you can be seated. We're going we're gonna to keep doing that and keep worshiping as the ushers come and receive offering. We're going to remember just the grace that we have through Jesus Christ. And um, I love the beginning words of this song. It just says that I need that grace more than even words can say, more than the words that we sing. We need him. Um, words can't even articulate um, the depth that we need. Uh, what God has for us, but what's amazing is that it's more than we can imagine, and it's it's ours for the having through Jesus. Oh, how I need your grace more than my words can say. Jesus, I come. Jesus, I
It's Super Bowl weekend, and there's a couple of teams out of all the teams that started off the year that are now in that final game, and they've been spending the last couple of weeks watching film and studying and planning, and, and let me tell you what they're planning to do. They're planning to win. That's their plan. They're looking at the strengths of the other team and how they can come up against it and the weaknesses of the other team. They're looking at all the schemes that the other teams have used throughout the season that they might just pull out of the hat again and even thinking about schemes that maybe they haven't uh, pulled out yet. But let me tell you about something today that is more important than this game. With all the attention that's given to it and all the money that's being spent on it, there's something more important than this game and that is your life. And friends, you have an enemy as well, and so do I. The Bible tells us in 1 Peter 5, 8, be, sober, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And I know there's some of you who may be here today, or maybe you're listening online at one of our other campuses, and you don't believe in a literal devil. He is so happy about that. He is so pleased. Because that means that you're not planning this week to win because you don't even know you're in a battle. You see, I don't think people plan to lose. Uh, nobody sits down on Sunday afternoon and looks at their coming week and says, you know what, I think on Monday at two o'clock I'll tell a big fat whopping lie. And then I'll schedule another lie at four o'clock to cover the lie that I told at two o'clock. I don't think anybody plans this week to gossip and destroy somebody else's reputation. I don't know that anybody intentionally will walk into a bar this week for the sole purpose of getting drunk and getting a DWI and perhaps taking another person's life in the process. I doubt that any of you are planning this week to 
uh, in a vital relationship to lose your temper and say something that you will regret literally for the rest of your life. Not many of you are uh, planning on having an unwanted pregnancy or contracting an STD. But these kinds of things happen every single week. Not because someone planned to do those things, but because they didn't plan not to do those things. We're in a series of uh, messages called Schemes. And what we've been talking about is we've been recognizing the fact that we have an enemy. And if we don't plan to win, we are really planning to fail. And we need to be aware of the schemes of the evil one. And today we're looking in 1 John, the second chapter, and we're going to look at the simple, straightforward scheme of temptation and how Satan comes against us. In 1 John 2, 15, it says this, do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Don't miss verse 16, because that's the heart of the passage. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. The world is passing away and also it's lust. But the one who does the will of God, that person lives forever. And here in this passage, the scripture tells us the temptations that Satan will bring to, to us. It says, first of all, there is the lust of the flesh. Now, that's usually what we think of when we think of temptation. It is the temptation to do something that we should not be involved in as followers of Jesus Christ. The lust of the flesh. Uh, if you were going to call this something, you could call it hedonism. It, and it's interesting, it's not just someone who wants to have fun and who wants to have experiences, but many times it's people who have pain in their life. And because the pain is so great in their life, they seek to medicate that pain with drugs, with alcohol, with uh, food, with sex, with, with something that's a, a pleasure, uh, something that would appeal to the flesh. And it's not even because they're looking for a new high as much as they're trying to dull the pain in their life. And the reality is a lot of times that pain is in their life because they've disobeyed God in other areas. And so a, a simple deed becomes a habit and a simple habit becomes an addiction. And then addiction causes so much greater pain than the original deed. And then there is the lust of the eyes. And if we were going to simplify that, we would just say that is the temptation to have. And oh my goodness, that's a temptation in our society to have something, to to think that stuff is going to somehow fill this void in our life, and yet it never really satisfies. And then finally, the pride of life, and to simplify that, it is simply the temptation to be, to be recognized, to achieve, to have rank, uh, to be seen as something. And here's another interesting thing about this particular temptation. Many times, this temptation, we think about this is. Uh, something that people who are arrogant are susceptible to. But the reality is there's a lot of people who struggle with self-esteem. They, they struggle with self-worth for whatever reason. Maybe the, they've never been affirmed as a child. Maybe they've never been loved. And, and as a result, they seek to be seen by others as more than they are or to be recognized by others 
for the achievements they've made. These people have a real hard time saying they're sorry or saying they're wrong because they, they, they have a temptation to be right all the time because that's a, a form of status. Now, now, these three kinds of temptations are what I call the three gates. In, in ancient times, if you wanted to attack a city, you never really attacked the city at its strong points. You attacked at its weakest points, and the weakest point of a city was not the wall, it was the gates. Same thing is true today. Somebody wants to break into your home, they don't try to drill through the brick in the middle of the wall. They go for the windows. They go for the doors. They go for the gates. In the same way, when Satan attacks us, when he seeks to defeat, defeat us, he's going to go for the gates. These three gates most of the time. And this is not something new. Satan is not very original. He's been doing this since the beginning of time. In Genesis, the uh, third chapter, verse six, it talks about the first woman and the first man when they were tempted. It says, the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eye and that the tree was desirable to make one wise. She took from its fruit and she ate and she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. Now look at that. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, she had the temptation to do something that God had specifically told her not to do. That it was a delight to the eyes. She wanted to have something that she thought God was holding back from her that if she had it, then she would truly be happy. And that the tree was desirable to make one wise. That is the temptation to be like God. In fact, that's what Satan told her. He said, if you eat of this tr tree, you will be like God. The temptation to do, the temptation to have, the temptation to be. Satan is still doing it today. And he comes to each one of us and he tries to tempt us in one of those three areas. Now, when Jesus was tempted, the Bible tells us that Jesus was tempted in all manner just like we are and yet without sin. We find in Matthew, the fourth chapter, that Jesus Christ was tempted in the same exact way. Look there in Matthew, if you have your Bibles with you, in Matthew, the fourth chapter, beginning in one, it talks about, in the very first verse, the lust of the flesh that Jesus was tempted with. It says, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, if you're the son of God, command that these stones become bread. And he answered, he said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that perceives out of the mouth of God. Now we know that this particular temptation in the wilderness took place right after that high moment when Jesus was baptized in the Jordan. And because of uh, tales that are in the scripture there, we know approximately where Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River. And I've actually stood there at the banks of the Jordan at the place where it's believed that Jesus was baptized by John. And you can literally stand there in the Jordan Valley and you can look up and you can see the Judean wilderness to the west on the way to Jerusalem. And as Jesus would have walked from that baptism into the wilderness, the Bible says he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, he could literally see that on that one day's journey into the wilderness. And that wilderness was barren as it is today. 
There's not a lot of water there. There's no food that's there. And so Satan comes to him and Satan says, hey, look at those rocks. Those rocks, if you could imagine, they kind of look like, and I'm going to paraphrase a little bit here, like the bread that your mother used to make. Can't you just smell that? And in my mind, I'm even imagining that Satan is producing the, the, the odor of bread being cooked over a hot stone. And then in my mind, I see Satan saying, just look at that. And then he just opens it up for Jesus. And when he does, the steam just comes up out of that rock. And then I, I'm imagining that Satan takes a big old chunk of freshly churned butter and drops it in the middle <laughs> of that rock that's been turned into red. And, and it just, it's pouring out on either side. Now, Jesus had been in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. Some of you ate four hours ago and you want this bread. <laughs> I want this bread. That's good bread. And so Satan comes and he tempts with the lust of the flesh. Now, when you look at that passage, you think to yourself, what would have been so wrong for Jesus after he had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights to use the power that he had just to turn those rocks into bread? What would have been wrong with that? I mean, was it like Jesus had only a certain number of miracles and that if he used one of those miracles to turn those rocks into bread for himself, that later on he would have to see a blind man upon the way and say, hey, I'd love to heal you, but I used up your miracle in the wilderness for some hot bread. No, Jesus was limitless in his power. But here's what Jesus knew. Jesus knew that he was not in that wilderness for his comfort. And he had not been given miracles to minister to himself. That would have been a misuse of the abilities that he had. And he realized that he was not in that wilderness to eat. He was in that wilderness for pain. Let me just stop right here. See, part of the problem comes when you and I come to believe that it is never God's will for you and I to be in discomfort. Don't miss that. We just assume, I mean, that's not even something that we debate. We just start with a presupposition that God always wants us to be comfortable. And friends, that's not true. God can redeem the pain in our life. And you see, part of the reason that Jesus was in the wilderness and he was in pain, it was a precursor it was a prelude to the pain that he would experience, a greater pain that he would experience on your behalf and on my behalf on the cross when he not only went through physical pain, but he went through spiritual pain that you and I cannot even imagine. That was preparation for that, and he dare not skip that. He better embrace that pain because there would be a greater pain that would be coming. What Jesus knew that many times you and I miss is that Jesus knew that the meal of doing God's will is the only meal that really satisfies. And many times we settle for the junk food of this world. And as a result, we lose our appetite for the greater substance that God wants to provide for us. First of all, Jesus experienced the lust of the flesh. The second that he experienced was the lust of the eyes. There in Matthew, the fourth chapter, 
Beginning in verse 8, it says this. It says, and again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. It's the lust of the eyes. He showed him all the kingdoms of the world. He said, you can have all of that. I think this is especially a dangerous gate for those of us who live in the metroplex, those of us who live in the United States. As Americans, we comprise only 5% of the world's population, but we consume 30% of all the world's resources each year. What's wrong with that? And it's not even like we keep those things or we need those things. The average American every year throws away seven pounds a day. Over their lifetime, 600 times their weight. In food, clothing, and shoes, and furniture, and other furnishings. Uh, we have so much that we have to rent storage for all the junk that we have. And so this is something that Satan brings to us again and again to say, you know, if you just had one more thing, if you had a bigger thing or a better thing or an upgraded thing, then you'll be satisfied. Is that what happens? Not at all. It becomes a habit. It becomes an addiction, this temptation to have. Then the Bible tells us in Matthew, the fourth chapter, beginning there in verse 5, that he tempted him with the pride of life. In verse five it says, and then the devil took him up to the holy city and he had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and he said to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down. For it's written, he will give his angels charge concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, on the other hand, it's written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Now let's be sure that we understand what this was all about for Jesus. He took him to the holy city. You can actually go to the place where Satan took Jesus on that day, the holy city. This is Jerusalem and we're standing, if we're, we've got a view that we're standing from the Mount of Olives and we're looking over to Mount Moriah, the holy city. And there you see the famous dome, the, the mosque that was built approximately where the temple was built in Jesus' day. So if you can just imagine, instead of this mosque being there, that the holy temple is there on top of Mount Moriah. And, and he takes him there, and basically what he says to him is, if you'll stand on the pinnacle of the temple and you'll throw yourself down, the angels come and catch you, and everyone who's coming there to this religious site, they will see that you are who you say you are that you're the Messiah, that you're the one sent from God, and they'll all fall down and worship you. Now, some interesting things here. First of all, there is a large platform that was built underneath the temple. Once again, this is where the temple stood approximately, and there's this large platform that was built because Mount Moriah actually came up like this and continued up here. In order to give a flat surface to the temple area where people would gather and they would worship, they actually built a wall. 
And you can see the remnants of this wall. Actually, this wall is the Turkish wall that was built on top of where the wall was, but it's approximately in that same area. And, and I share that with you because this right here is the pinnacle of the temple. It's not actually something that's on the temple. It didn't have a steeple on it, and it wasn't on the top of the steeple. This is actually the temple, what is still known today as the temple mound. All of this area was an area of worship around the temple. But this corner is where they would stand and blow the trumpet and call people to worship. And that corner where they would blow that trumpet, the part of the wall that was built up on Mount Moriah to give a flat area was called the pinnacle of the temple. Now right now you can see in this photograph that there's a road right here that goes around. At the time of Jesus there was no road there. There was just the valley that you see down here. And this is the Kindron Valley. What's important for you to understand is that when Jesus was standing there, and Satan was tempting him. He was saying, throw yourself off this down into the Kindron Valley. The angels will catch you up and you'll get the recognition. You'll be seen as who you are. The temptation of the pride of life to be seen as who you are. Now remember in Philippians it says that our Savior humbled himself. And he did not think that equality with God was something that he had to hang on to. But he became obedient to God to death, even death on the cross. When he was standing here on the pinnacle of the temple, he could look over here. And right here, right here, my friends, is where all scholars believe was the Garden of Gethsemane. There in the bottom part of the Kindron Valley, the place where Jesus would pray and he would sweat drops of blood because he knew the pain that was before him. It was there in that garden that he would decide to lay his life down for you and me. You need to understand the temptation as he stood here on the pinnacle of the temple was to be seen as the Messiah without the garden. From here he could also see the Tower of Antonio right here. And the Tower of Antonio was where the Roman garrison stayed. It would be the place where they would take him from here over to Caiaphas's house and then back to the Tower of Antonio. And there on the Tower of Antonio, they would strip his clothes off of him. They would beat his back. They would pluck out his beard and they would hit him across the face. He could see both of those places and he knew what was right behind the Tower of Antonio, still on Mount Moriah, he knew that on the other side of this building was a place called the Skull, Calvary. And what Satan was saying is you don't have to go through the garden. You don't have to go through the Tower of Antonio. You certainly don't have to go to the cross. You can be seen as who you really are, your rightful place. Do you realize that if he had yielded to that temptation, all of that might have been true. But he would have left you and I to go to hell. When he said no to this temptation, the pride of life, he said yes to you and to me. Now friends, those are the three gates they're important because if we don't understand those three gates, we will not be able to stand against the evil one as he comes against those three gates. Now, 
Quickly note this. There's nothing wrong with pleasure. There's not. Uh, If God had meant for us never to enjoy pleasure, he would have never made food tasty and he would have never made sex fun. All right? I figured I'd get at least one amen there. It's too late now. (laughs) Too late. There's nothing wrong with possessions and having things. Uh, The very first man and woman were put in the garden. They were given charge to manage and be good stewards. God would not have given us instructions on how to be good stewards if it was wrong for us to have things. And if you look in the Bible, there are people who had a lot and there are people who had a little. God never condemned those who had a lot. He condemned their attitude toward it, their reliance on it and what they did in order to get it. That was his only criticism. There's nothing wrong with proper self-esteem and achievement. What's wrong is what we do to get it and how we depend upon it. These are the three gates that Satan attacks on a regular basis. It reminds me of the story that you find in Homer's Iliad, the story of when the Greeks laid uh, siege to the city of Troy. For 10 years, they tried to break down the walls of Troy, and they were unsuccessful. And so at the end of those 10 years, they said, we surrender, we're leaving, but as we leave, we want to leave a gift with you. And they, bought, they built a large wooden horse, and you know the story, the Trojan horse. That's where we get our phrase, beware of Greeks bearing gifts. And they pretended to leave that gift and go and get on their ships. And so the people of Troy looked over and they were so proud of what they had been able to accomplish to stand against the Greeks. And so they went out, they opened their gates and went out and they brought the Trojan horse into their city. And as they began to celebrate their great victory, they fell into a drunken stupor. And in the middle of the night, the soldiers who had been hidden in the Trojan horse came out. And they opened up the gates once again for all of the the Greeks who had pretended to leave but came back in the dark of the night. And they came in and they killed many people. And they took their wives and their children as slaves for life. After 10 years of victory, they lost. And their families were devastated because they opened their own gates. What is it that Satan is offering you today that seems so attractive that you would open your own gates and you would expose your health and your family and your reputation and your potential to be destroyed? I think this is a good question. We talk here about uh, Gary uh, Chapman's five love languages. We talk about the fact that we all express love in different ways, but there are basically five love languages. And if we're going to really tell the people around us that we love them, we must speak in their love language. Things like uh, the love language of gift giving or the love language of verbal affirmation or undivided attention or touch. And we've actually talked about that. We've identified our love language. Do you know there are temptation languages as well? All of us need to have all of the love languages expressed to us, but there's one that speaks louder than any other. 
Satan, I believe, will tempt us in all three of these temptation languages. But here's what I believe. I believe there is one that speaks to you and that is more enticing to you than any of the others. Do you know what yours is? I think it's important that you're aware of what your temptation love language is. And if you don't know at first glance which one it may be to, to do things that you shouldn't do, to hedonism or materialism, to have things that you don't have, thinking that it will be provided in happiness to you, or always to be right or to be seen as more important, ask the Holy Spirit to tell you which one that you're most susceptible to. Again, Satan comes against us with all of those. But I believe that there are some of us who are more tempted to open up our gates and be exposed in one area than another. So how do we fortify our gates? A couple of closing thoughts. First of all is to understand the need behind the deed. In other words, what need are we trusting Satan to provide for us that we are not trusting God to provide for us. For example, someone may lie and we think that lying, habitual lying is the problem, but really the person needs to ask the question, why are they lying? It may be the pride of life. Maybe they lie in order to get attention. Maybe they lie avoid being demoted. Maybe they lie uh, in order to make themselves look better than they are. Or it could be that another lie is really about the lust of the eyes. It's you lie on the tax form or you lie to your boss about your work because you want to have things that you don't rightfully deserve. I think we need to get behind the actual sin and get to the need behind the deed. Because here's, here's the rub, my friends. Don't miss this. This may be worth a trip. If we can get to the need that we're seeking to meet with the deed that we're doing, rather than focusing in on the, the deed, whether it's really right or wrong, then what we're really doing is we're saying, what is our source to have our needs met? Because your source will determine your course. Your source will determine your behavior. One of my favorite scriptures comes from Philippians. I, I read it earlier today. In Philippians 4.19 it says, And my God will supply all of your needs according to the, his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. You see, it's less tempting to open up that gate if God has already met that need. If he's given you the pleasure, the joy in your soul and ministry and making a difference for him in this world. If he's given you a reasonable amount of possessions and the Bible tells us that contentment is a great treasure. Just to be satisfied with what you have and enjoy it instead of always be looking over at what somebody else has. To realize that you are someone, the God of the universe created you. You're as unique as a fingerprint. And, the, and Jesus Christ has laid his life down for you. That's what you're worth. Friends, nothing else really matters after that. And when you let God meet those needs in your life, then it takes away the temptation, the, the, the yearning to open up and expose yourself to have a need met that God promised that he will meet. Now, don't miss this. Sometimes when you ask God to meet a need, he doesn't meet it immediately. He doesn't. Because, again, we think that the goal is our comfort, and it's not. 
Sometimes the God who has the ability to meet our need also has the wisdom to know when that need needs to be met. And the, what the pain will bring about in our life sometimes is greater than the need that we think that needs to be met. And then finally, we need to guard the gate. There are people that if we're around, we have more of a tendency to yield to temptation. There are situations, if we find ourselves in, that we're more susceptible to swing open the gate. There are thoughts that we have that if we give into, we'll end up opening the gate. Somebody once said, opportunity knocks, but the devil leans on the doorbell. Next time the devil leans on the doorbell, send Jesus to the door. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for the promise that greater is he who is in us than he who's in the world. We pray all this in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. We're going to sing a song of reflection. I challenge you to answer the question, what are the needs in my life that I'm trusting Satan to meet that I can't trust Jesus to meet? What is my temptation language? And how can I trust God to go to the door for me? Greater is he who's in me than he who's in the world.
We'll see you back here next Sunday. Thanks for listening today. For more biblical teaching and worship, join us for our church online live weekend services on Saturdays at 5 p.m. and Sundays at 9.30 and 11 a.m. Central Standard Time. For more information about all the digital ministries of Lake Point, visit lakepoint.church/digital. Lake Point.